Well, again, good evening. It's good to be back with you all for one last lesson. I hope and I pray that these lessons have, for those who may have not had a clear picture on what God's church is and how it's organized and how it's designed, given you a clear picture, a clear foundation to build off of as you seek to understand what Christ's church is in a universal sense, what it is in a local sense, and how those two relate together. For those who may have already had a clear picture on that, I hope it has reinforced God's design and God's intention, and it has equipped you to be able to explain it more clearly to others, help them see it more plainly, what the Bible says, and how God portrays His people. And I hope it's really helped you get a better sense of what your purpose is. That as the first song said, I hope that understanding what God's intention for you as a saint is will give you a passion for him. And I know many, many of you do. You have shown that passion and your kindness to me and Heidi and our family. And I want to thank you one more time for all the prayers you have offered, the prayers you will offer, for the kind words and cards, for the gifts. It touches us deeply. And it's my hope and prayer that as we walk through this journey with our baby, that we will be a strength to you and a glory to God. Tonight, I want to talk about the assembly, which is kind of obvious if you think about it, considering that the word ecclesia means Assembly It's kind of strange that so far we haven't really talked about what we do when we actually get together as a local church. The last two lessons we've been looking at purposes, intentions, designs God had for local assemblies that happen mostly actually outside of the four walls of the meeting place. But what is God's purpose for the meeting place? What is God's intention for when churches get together? But before we get to answering that question real quick, I'm going to make you look at this chart one more time before I leave. And you might be glad I'm leaving just so you don't have to see this chart anymore. And, uh, and a couple of things I'll point out. One of the more technical question that we really didn't touch on earlier, but I'll touch on now. Um, it's a valid question to ask how local church membership works. How does someone become a part of a local church? Uh, because God adds you to the universal church by being saved. But how does one become a part of a local assembly? The the best example I can give you is Saul in Jerusalem where he tries to connect himself to the local assembly. And they don't accept him because they don't think he's really a Christian. They think he's an imposter trying to figure out who they are so he can arrest them and he can persecute them. But the closest example you have in scripture of someone placing membership And a group is is probably the example of Saul. You have a couple of the cases where people go from one congregation to another to work with them. Um, But here you have someone in the city trying to connect themselves. And so what that says is that just because you show up at a local congregation doesn't mean that you get subsumed into the group just by being there long enough. That you need to let the group know whether or not you want to be recognized with them so that they can know whether or not to depend on you in the local church work. Um, uh, There is work we do as individuals, that purpose of the universal church, that one body. um, But um, I wanted to make that point uh, just in case anyone was unclear on that. 
Another point I wanted to highlight from this chart that I hadn't, didn't make, hasn't, haven't made explicitly clear yet um, is that if you look at this chart, I think it should be pretty clear that the biblical pattern doesn't, is not denominational. Meaning in the term that when you talk about denomination, it is a group of groups that are organized and work in tandem in some sense under some kind of hierarchy. Uh, you may or may not know that the Baptist denomination uh, often is connected in loose conferences and they often go to different meetings and, and there's sometimes the president. And it's not that this, over, that this administration controls each local group. But what they say uh, does have weight and does have merit. They talk about doctrine and teaching and what they, they believe. And that's supposed to be taught in their conference. Um, uh, in contrast, a highly structured denomination, the, the, the best example of that is probably the Catholic Church or the, um, uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, uh, where you have a specific head who is a man and then you have a body of men under him and then you have... Uh, guys under them and you have the world and country split up into different sections and even those split up into different sections and they all answer to this hierarchy. And so when I talked about term denomination, denominational, that's the idea I'm thinking of. And when you look at this chart, clearly that's not God's pattern. You have individual congregations when it comes to the universal church and how that works and how that operates, the individuals are connected to Christ. And you see no pattern in Scripture, no instruction in Scripture for congregation to begin acting as groups under the authority of some other man. Now, those local congregations are still under the authority of Christ. They're still his or not his if they choose to rebel against his authority. But you will New Testament. And like we said last night, anytime you change God's design, your result is always inferior. Even if you're well-intentioned, even if you think this will be more efficient or be more effective, anytime you change God's design, the result is always worse. And one other point I want to make before we jump into tonight's main topic. I think the church in Sardis example is probably the most confusing example. Uh, I know it was for me when I first started thinking about these ideas. That's the one people have talked to me the most about. And so I don't want to be misunderstood. What I don't think Sardis was necessarily acting denominationally, meaning getting together with other churches and doing denominational structure things. They might have been, but we're not told that they are. No, I think most likely Sardis starts off teaching and practicing the things they're supposed to under the authority of Christ, and they drift away from that. But what I don't want you to, uh, to take away from Sardis is that even though you have a handful of faithful members in Sardis, while most of the congregation has disconnected themselves from God, that doesn't mean that that's the way God wants it to be. What I mean by that, if you consider Pergamum and Thyatira, do you remember what they're rebuked for? They're rebuked because they're not addressing the false teaching and the false practice happening in their congregation. They're told, you need to address that. Very similar to 1 Corinthians. There's a guy living in sin and you're not talking about it. You need to approach him and help him understand this is not right. And they say, that, that, that woman of Jezebel, okay, no more time for her. You need to separate from her. So whatever is going on in Sardis, I'm pretty sure that those who are worthy to walk with Jesus in white are not ignoring it. 
They're, they're not participating in it, but they're also not just pretending like it's not there. They're confronting it. Otherwise, Jesus would be rebuking them for the same kinds of things he rebukes Pergamum and Thyatira for, for not addressing the false practice and the false teaching. And so if you ever find yourself in a started situation where you're seeking to be faithful to God while most of the congregation is not, you have to understand it is your divine responsibility to discuss that. To make a point to your fellow members of this local group that what they're doing isn't within God's will. If I just go and join a group that isn't really following God, doing God's will, and I stay silent, God's going to do what he threatened to do to the program of Thyatira. I can't stay silent. So don't misunderstand me. When, uh, when I talk about the possibility of an individual being in the universal church, the one by the saved, and yet possibly being part of a congregation that by and large is unfaithful. They can't just stay there and not try to bring people back to God. So what about the assembly? Growing up, I heard two major reasons given for why we get together on a regular basis. And you need to understand, in the New Testament, when it talks about the church gathering as a church, it's a common phrase Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. When you gather as a church, the New Testament uh, writers and Christians were primarily thinking about Sunday when they gathered to remember the Lord's Supper. We will see that as we go through some of these passages. But as far as we can tell, most of the New Testament churches didn't gather as a church on a regular basis on the other days. And there'd be all kinds of reasons for that. It might be because the other days were work days and people were working from sun up to sundown. Uh, most of these people are not rich. We're told that most of the wealthy and most of the wise are not going to listen to the gospel because they don't need God. And so most of these people are scraping by a living. And, and so they may not have time to show up at a regular midweek Bible study. Now, don't misunderstand that. Acts chapter 2 makes it very clear that they were spending daily time with one another. Um, Paul, in the passage we'll look at, will talk about how he's, he studies with people. He teaches people privately from house to house. So just don't think that people aren't interacting. But when it talks about the assembly of the congregation or of the church, local church in the New Testament, the writers are primarily thinking about what happens on that first day of the week. So with that in mind, the two big answers that I have seen uh, can, can be kind of summarized in Acts 2.42, which is a really a very informative passage because this is where you have a bunch of brand new Christians. If you want to know where you should start your life or start your growth or build your foundation as a Christian, this is a really great place to turn to because you have a bunch of brand new Christians, and what do they do? How do they start off their walk with God? Well, they devote themselves to four Things. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so I'd group those four things into two categories. The first two, apostles' teaching and fellowship. I would group under the general heading of teaching, or you could call that admonishment. And then they were also breaking bread and uh, praying, which I'd group under the heading of worship. Now I realize the phrase breaking of bread um, it may be vague to some of us. But if you consider how few things God calls us to be devoted to, to give ourselves entirely over for, in that song, I have a passion for my God, it talks about God is my everything. That's the idea of devotion. It's not just something you occasionally do or even you regularly do. It's something you're, you have given yourself entirely over to. 
And considering Jesus very clearly says, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that leads to eternal life, I don't think God is telling us that the apostles and the early Christians devoted themselves to eating food on regular, eating food every day. No, no, they're not talking about regular meals. They're talking about the Lord's Supper here. And so these are the two general answers I have heard growing up. But we need to ask Is that backed up by scriptures? That will we see playing out when we look at the reasons for why a local church assembles. So let's look at a couple passages. So we'll consider that first one, teaching first. Go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem at this point. We learn in verse 6 that it's after the days of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we learn in verse 16, he's trying to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. And so we know he's actually in that 50-day time period between the Passover and between Pentecost. And and so if we pick up in verse uh, 6 of Acts 20, they've sailed from Philippi. It takes about five days for them to get from Philippi to Troas. And that's significant considering how long he stays in Troas when he's wanting to get to Jerusalem. Look in verse, uh, look in verse 5 where it says, And they stayed there seven days. Why does Paul stay in Troas seven days when we learn later in the chapter that he wants to get to Jerusalem by day Pentecost? We're already in, into the second week uh, after uh, after. The, uh, after the, the Passover um, uh, and after the unleavened bread. And so, I mean, Paul only has about 40-ish more days to get to Jerusalem. Why does he, why does he stay seven whole days in, in Troas? Well, I think the answer becomes pretty clear when you read verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul began talking to them, intending to leave the next day. And he prolonged his message till midnight. Why would I say that we're talking about the Sunday gathering um, is because Paul actually waits seven days to get to see these brethren, even though he really wants to get to Jerusalem. He waits a whole week. Why? Well, because that's when the brethren gathered. They gathered on the first day of the week, the day Jesus rose from the dead. They gathered to break bread, and Paul taught. Continue with me in verse 8. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the windowsill, sinking into a deep sleep. As Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him, and after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak, and then they left. This is really interesting. One, Paul talks a long time. He teaches a long time. Now, we learn from his conversation that follows that he's not going to get to pass by this way again. The brethren in Ephesus and presumably the brethren in Troas will never see Paul again in person. And so he talks a long time because there are some things he wants them to understand. There's some teaching he wants them to comprehend, and it's really important for them to get it. It's so important that when Eutychus, whose name ironically means lucky one, falls out of a window and dies, and Paul raises him from the dead, Paul goes back to teaching because there's things they need to know. There is something that he needs to get across, and he knows he won't get to see them again. So there is this stress on teaching, but it doesn't stop there in this chapter. Jump down into verse 18. Paul is Miletus. He's called the elders of Ephesus. 
He didn't want to go inland to Ephesus. He's trying to get to Jerusalem, like I said, from verse 16. He's trying to get there by Pentecost. So pick up in verse 18. When they, the elders, had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. How did I not? How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that is profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying, "Bonds and afflictions await me." And he goes on to explain how. He's going to go because the Spirit is compelling him to go. And so even though he knows persecution awaits, he must go. But as he talks to these dear friends, these men he spent several years with, he says, you know that with tears and humility and urgency, I taught you. I taught you privately from house to house, but I also taught you publicly. And I think they would probably include in the marketplaces or in the synagogues. But it certainly would include their regular assemblies that apparently happened on the first day of the week. It says, you know how I stressed trying to get across God's message and God's truth. I didn't hold back anything that was profitable. Anything I could think of that was helpful. Anything God gave to me, I gave to you because you need to know God's will. Jump down to verse 25. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come, in my, uh, will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance of all those who are sanctified. Again, he stresses that he didn't cease to admonish them, that he did so with tears. He talks about how he labored so intensely to try to make sure they understood God's word and God's truth. And at the end of this, when he says, you're not going to see my face any longer, what does he do? This is significant. These are the last words that Paul's going to speak to these men that he loved dearly and who love him dearly face to face. And what does he do? I commend you to God and to his word, which is able to give you the inheritance. He says, don't forsake the word of God. I'm going away, and eventually Paul knows he's going to die. So where do you turn to when you need guidance? Where do you turn to when you need help? You turn to the word of God. Now, I realize in the context that would apply to more than just the assembly. And we can look at a lot of places to make the point that that does apply to the regular assembly. First Corinthians is a really great book. If you want to look at local church activity and local church assemblies, First Corinthians is probably the best book to start with. Because more about that in that book than I know of any of the other letters, at least in a concentrated form. 
But for sake of time, I think the implication becomes very clear. It gave you all of God's purpose, God's whole purpose, his whole counsel. It commends him the word of God. But the implication is very clear that when I assembled with you, when we got together on a regular basis at our regular assembly, we taught. We taught people about God. We taught people about God's will and God's law and God's plan and God's purposes. We taught. And now I commend you to that word that can continue to teach you. So, again, we've done a very brief job, but for sake of time, we're going to pause at this point and move on to the next one. There are other passages we could look at to make this point. But one of the reasons that we get together on a regular basis, one thing that should be happening, just as what happens in verse 7, they got together to break bread, and Paul taught a long time. Not that we have to preach till midnight every night. I know you guys appreciate that. But because Paul's not, this is the last time Paul's going to be there, he makes it this, this is kind of an, a, an exaggerated session. But they get together to teach and to learn. But what about the idea of worship? Again, one of the reasons I often heard given for why we assemble, what the point of assembly is, is that biblical? Is, does the Bible back up that idea? Well, we have the point in verse 7 that they gathered to break bread. Again, to me, the, the context is so clear. We're talking about the Lord's Supper. But I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to make this point. In the first part, Paul talks about authority and talks about the head covering. And in verse 17, he shifts gears where he says, But in giving destruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better but for the worse. So whatever Paul's about to write, he's not happy about. He's not pleased with the Corinthians. Verse 18, for in, the, uh, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in, eat, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. Now, if you just read verse 20 in isolation, you might be a little confused. Where Paul says, when you get together, it's not for, to partake of the Lord's Supper. And notice how he talk, the context he's talking about. He says, when you gather as a church, when you gather as an assembly, as you gather as a local group of God, it's not to partake of the Lord's Supper. Well, I thought, I mean, Acts 20 kind of indicated that it should be. So why does Paul say they're not? But when you read the rest of the content, you realize, he says in verse 22, What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. He's not saying this should be the case. He's saying this is the case. You're not gathering to actually partake of the Lord's Supper because you're not doing it the way God wants. And he says, I will not praise you in this. This is wrong. This is bad. This is not the way God wants it. And so again, you have this implication. It should be to partake of the Lord's Supper. This should be a focal point of your assembly. You're failing in that because of the way you're doing it. But there's also a secondary question that we should answer real quick. That's a fair question. Does the Lord's Supper count as worship? Now, some of us may have never asked that question. But if you actually look at the word worship in, the, in your English versions, you're going to realize it doesn't show up nearly as much as you would expect. 
And so does the Lord's Supper count as worship? Real quick, jump back to chapter 10, and we'll just glance at a couple of verses here. Picking up in verse 14, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? What is he talking about? The cup of the Lord's Supper. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? What is he talking about? The bread of the Lord's Supper, the cup, the fruit of the vine that represents Jesus' blood, and the bread that represents his body hung on the cross. It says, aren't we sharing in the blood and body of Christ when we partake of these things? Verse 17, since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altars? What do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So Paul takes the Lord's Supper... And he draws a parallel and says, think about the Old Testament sacrifices. Those who ate of those sacrifices, are they not sharers in the altar? Those who partook of that worship, are they not partakers of the altar of God in the Old Testament? And then he draws another parallel to pagan worship, which in his day was modern. Modern pagan worship. He says, those who eat of those sacrifices, are they not partaking in those altars? Are they not participating in that worship? And then he tells them, you can't eat at the table of demons and eat at the table of of the Lord. I think all of us in here would probably agree that idol sacrificing is worship to a pagan god, to a false god, but is worship. That what the Israelites did in making their sacrifice under the Old Covenant was worship. And Paul looks at these two examples and says, there's a parallel here to what we do with the Lord's Supper. It's worship. I make that point because, again, if you go in the Bible to look for the word worship, you're going to have a hard time finding it in the context you expect to find it. I just want to lay that groundwork that that this does qualify as worship. And so we're going to use it as a representation for other kinds of worship as well that should happen. But Paul says you should be gathering to partake of the Lord's Supper. You should be gathering to worship God. But again, it's interesting because Paul doesn't explicitly say that we conclude it. Rightly so, from what he says, he clearly means that this should be the case. This should be one of the reasons you're gathering, but it's still an implicit conclusion. Something that is implied and we infer. It's not any less binding, but it is implicitly stated. And that's important because there is one explicit reason given to Scripture for assembling together as a local group. You have the implicit reason for teaching. You have the implicit reason for worship. But those are implicit. There's one explicit reason. And before we get to that, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 3. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. The main issue in Hebrews is that the Jews, the Hebrews, are wanting to go back to the old law. They're tired of being persecuted as Christians. They're tired of being mistreated or being ostracized by their fellow Jews who are not Christians. And they want to go back to the way things used to be. And the Hebrew writer is begging them, urging them, don't go back 
The old law is no longer how you can please God. It will no longer satisfy God. You need the new law. So we'll pick up in chapter 3, verse 12, where he says, Take care. Pay attention. Be careful. Watch out for yourselves, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Do you know what the danger of becoming a Christian is? Satan is, trying to go, is going to try to develop an evil, unbelieving heart inside of you. Each and every one of us. He is going to try to, to mutate the work God is doing, to pervert the work God is doing, to create doubt, to create evil in our hearts. And so the writer says, be careful, pay attention. So what is the solution? He goes on in verse 13, actually gives us the solution, where he says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that no one will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I love that verse. His, his simple solution is encourage one another. But I love the verse because of how poetic he is here. When should we encourage each other? Day after day. There's another way of saying Daily. But sometimes when we use poetry or figures of speech, it sticks in our head better. We get an image in our head, and it, remi- it sticks with us longer. So day after day, we are to encourage each other so we don't develop these evil, unbelieving hearts. But how long are we supposed to do that? As long as it's still called today. How long will it be called today? Until Jesus comes back and ends History and ends time. Another poetical way of saying is basically forever. Until Jesus comes back, keep doing this. Keep encouraging each other. So, and he goes on the rest of the paragraph to talk about what happened to Israel. Israel that was saved from captivity to Egypt. Baptized into Moses as 1 Corinthians 10 uses that language. Or baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. And they come out and get a new covenant with God And yet what happens? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of them, because of evil, unbelieving hearts that lead them into disobedience, are destroyed by God. He's warning the Hebrews, it can happen to you. So encourage each other every day so it doesn't. Now go to Hebrews chapter 10 verse 23. Hebrews 10, verse 23. He says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That is his main goal in this whole letter, to get them to do that thing. He keeps saying that in a variety of ways throughout the letter. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The only explicit command for why we assemble, the reason given for, we, for what we do to, and when we get together, is this right here. That we are to consider how to stimulate each other. I, just think, I want you to consider the word consider for a second. What does it mean? What's involved in considering? Well, it means you take time to think about, to meditate, 
to ponder. And what is it that we're supposed to be meditating and pondering over? We're supposed to be to considering how do we stimulate? The word here literally means to poke with a stick. Like a fire that's dying and we stir it up so it doesn't die. It means that this may not be a very comfortable process sometimes. When we poke each other with sticks. Because you need to think about how are you going to stir others up to two things he lists here. First, we're going to stir each other up to love. Do you realize the reason God wants you to show up to assembly is so that you can stir someone up to love? That's something that so many people who are believers in the Bible, believers in the God of the Bible, misunderstand. And you hear it in the way they talk about the churches they go to or the churches they're looking for. They say, I'm looking for a church that will give me this or will do this for me or help me accomplish this. That's not the reason given here for assembling. The reason given here for assembling is what you give in the assembly. How you stimulate others to love. 1 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, why do we teach Timothy? Why do we preach Timothy? We're trying to get people to love. Or the goal of our instruction is love. But that's not just Timothy's job or Paul's job or the elder's job. It's each and every one of our jobs. It might be in the conversations that happen before or after. When we ask people, how are you loving? Is your marriage going well? Or, or how, how are you getting along with your neighbors or your coworkers? Or you tell them about the way God has helped you become a more loving person. Or you ask them, is there, is there some temptation in your life, something that's drawing away, uh, you away from God that I can help you with? Those can be uncomfortable conversations. Catholics again, poke with a six sometimes, someone asks you, how are you doing spiritually? But that's the kind of thing that we should be doing because of the danger of developing even evil, unbelieving heart. God wants you to be with others. Satan wants you to be isolated. Satan knows you're a much easier target when others don't know what's going on in your life, when others aren't aware what, what's happening to you. He's going to have a lot easier time manipulating you and convincing you not to trust God. So the Hebrew writer says, you need to get together so you can stimulate each other to love. You can stimulate each other to good deeds. And that can look like a lot of different things. It can be inviting someone to join you in doing the good deeds, whether that's actually here or outside these four walls. Or you tell others about the good deeds those who have done for you, that brethren have performed on your behalf to encourage others and get them to think, well, maybe I should do that. That we brag on our brethren because of how good they have been and hopefully that will motivate, stir others, to, uh, stir others up to do the same thing. But we get together to do that kind of thing. It might be the kinds of comments or questions you ask in a Bible class. That you come to a Bible class not just to be taught, but to fulfill these purposes. 
how much better would our Bible classes be if everyone came thinking, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to say so I can stir up my brethren? It's very tempting to fall into the habit of, of thinking about the song leader and the songs he's going to choose and the prayers are going to be led and the preacher and, and, and the guy's going to talk at the, at the Lord's Supper and think, I really hope I'm stimulated today. I really hope they stir me up and, and rekindle my zeal. And they have a responsibility to do that. But that's not a one-way responsibility. This poking the stick thing goes both ways. Because we all need it. And there's one more thing he lists in this. Actually talks about not forsaking the assembling in chapter 10. He goes on to say, As the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want you think about that word encourage. For a long time, growing up, the word encourage in my mind just simply kind of meant, meant to make someone feel better when they felt down. And, and that could be a, one of the ways we use that term, and that's okay. But when I thought about being encouraged, it wasn't a very serious activity. But I want you to stop and just break that word apart into two pieces. The, the first part, the prefix, the in, and the word courage. Let me ask you a question. What do you need courage for? You need courage for hard things, for things that scare us, for things that are difficult, for things that we don't want to do. We don't need courage just when we feel a little bit down. We need courage when we feel like we can't stand up. It says we should be seeking to encourage each other, to instill courage so that we remain faithful and don't develop those evil, unbelieving hearts. That we should be getting together, thinking about what can I do to instill courage into my brethren. Whether that's standing up and being a light for Jesus, proclaiming our faith in a bold way that shares the light in the world, or whether that's being the kind of parent I ought to be, or whether that's actually submitting to my husband even though the world says I shouldn't. Whatever it is that's hard in your life, Your brethren should be asking the question, what can I do to encourage you, to instill courage in you? And you should be asking, what can you do to instill courage into them? That's why we get together. And I would suggest that the other two things that we talked about relate to this purpose. Consider 1 Corinthians 14, verse um, verse 26, when Paul writes... What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble each one, notice the individual nature of this statement. And if you go and read that chapter, you realize there's a lot of different people doing a lot of different things. Each one has a psalm. That's worship. That's praise of God. Has a teaching. That's edification. They're helping people understand God and his will. Revelation has a tongue, has interpretation. Look at this last phrase here. Let all things be done for edification, for the building up, for the encouragement, for the stimulating to love and good deeds. That's why God has us get together. And that is a job he gives to each and every one of us. Some of that happens very publicly. A preacher stands up in a pulpit and he talks and makes everyone else listen. Some of it happens very privately. 
one-on-one conversations or small Bible classes that we take the time we get together as a church to talk about and study God's Word together. But we need to understand this because this directly is going to impact every single church across denominations going forward. COVID-19 has encouraged people to stay away. And I'm not here to say that that's right or that's wrong. You want to talk about my views on that, I'll be glad to talk about that after this lesson. And I'm not saying there's never a time someone cannot be here and that God understands that. What I am saying is, if I choose to stay away from my brethren when I can be here, how can I fulfill this command? The explicit reason given in Scripture for why we assemble is to stimulate each other to love and good deeds. And if I make a choice, not because I can't or because I feel compelled by biblical principles to make the choice I'm doing, but just because it's more convenient, how can I say I'm doing what God tells me? We need each other. Life and death hangs in the balance, and God gave local assemblies so that people wouldn't be lost. And so this matters because we have to ask this question, am I fulfilling God's expectation for me? Are you fulfilling God's expectation for you? Are we stimulating each other to love and good deeds? This can be hard. In most churches I've ever been a part of, it's very common that as soon as the last amen is said, that we start talking about the weather, or we start talking about jobs, or we start talking about um, sports, and we miss an opportunity to stimulate one another. Whether it's about the lesson itself or not, we miss an opportunity to talk about things that really matter which is really the reason we're here. When when the amen is said, we miss the opportunity to ask, what is scary in your life? What is hard in your life? What are you afraid to do that you think God wants you to do? Tell me about what's going on. And in doing so, we miss the opportunity to bond together as saints and brethren. Are we fulfilling what God wants us to be? I'm not saying we can't ever talk about the weather. We can't ever talk about sports. But if that's all we talk about, we are missing an opportunity to help each other. And that's why we get together. Again, I'm going to end with John 13, verse 34 and 35. John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love or have loved one another. Does the world know I'm a disciple of Jesus because of my love for my brethren? Applying that principle is not always easy to do. It's not always clear-cut on how to do it. COVID-19 has shown that. And so many debates on what it actually means to love. But does the world know you love your brethren? And when you do assemble, or when you feel like you can assemble, do you come to stimulate others and show that love to them? To give love to them by stirring them up to love. If not, what can I do to help you? How can I stimulate you? How can I encourage you to do what is hard or scary or difficult or whatever it is in your life? What can I do? I want to know. If I know the brethren here, they want to know too. So if there is any way that we can help you spiritually, talk to us. Whether it's after the service, talk to each other. Or you can come forward as we stand and as we sing.